0: Good morning. Welcome again to the live stream at South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are in the middle of a series, Begin Again. Uh, It's an exciting series, I think, through the uh, letter of 1 John, near the back of your New Testament. Uh, We're excited. The first Sunday in May, May 2nd, we're going to be coming resuming our in-person worship. And uh, we hope that you've got that on your calendar, and if you're able to come, that Uh, You'll be able to be here. We do have a registration process on our website at uh, southsuburban.com that will go live here in another week or so, uh, so that you can register actually the Monday before that first Sunday. Um, We are looking forward to what God has in store for us. Uh, We will be coming back with some protocols, six foot distancing, masks, those sorts of things. But from what we're hearing, we're hoping that those protocols as we go through the summer will be lightened or lifted entirely. Uh, we're being told that probably by late summer, early fall, all of the protocols will be gone, and we are excited about that as well. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we hope that you are preparing yourself as God is relaunching His church throughout the world uh, as we enter into what will probably be a very different world in this post-pandemic world. <clears throat> uh, for many churches, it's been over a year since they've been together, uh, a lot of churches haven't made it uh, financially and otherwise, but we're grateful for what God has done here. We're grateful for what you've done. We're thankful for your, your prayers, your encouragement, your financial support. Uh, because of you, because of what God has done through you, uh, South Suburban Christian Church will continue to do its mission uh, that God called us to do. Uh, and so we're excited about that. I hope that you found 1 John near the back of your uh, New Testament. I'm going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning, and the message, actually, um, I'm going to reference very briefly chapter 2, verse 28, Uh, but I want to begin reading at verse 3. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read some selected verses. I'm going to begin uh, verses 1 through 7. So let's read God's Word together. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one abides in Him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. And then I want to jump over to verse 16. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us whoever keeps his commandments abides in god and god in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us here ends the reading of god's holy and perfect word may he add his blessings and his understanding to it amen Well, as I said earlier, we're in uh, this new series, Begin Again. This is uh, our second message. We're making our way through 1 John, Uh, a letter that is written by by John, who's the youngest disciple. Uh, Now, at the time of the writing of this letter, he's the only living disciple. All of the other disciples have been martyred. That is, they've been killed for their faith. Uh, John writing this is probably somewhere in his 80s. Uh, and he's affectionately called the Elder. Uh, We see this specifically in in 2 John and 3 John. And he writes to the Christians who are mainly in the city of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. If you remember last week, we said John, after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, John leaves Jerusalem and goes to Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And he really begins to develop a a very deep relationship with the Christians in and around Ephesus. Uh, They refer to him as the elder, the the old one, and uh, uh, John refers to the believers there as my children. Now, this is kind of unique in Scripture. Most of the other writers of the New Testament uh, refer to the recipients of their letters as the saints, uh, that is, as those who are in Christ, uh, or brothers and sisters, as we see a lot Uh, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. But here, John calls his readers by a very personal term, my children. In many ways, his letter uh, reminds me of of the kind of conversations that you and I might have with our own children, uh, reminding them of the point multiple times, over and over and over again, but with such patience, with such love, with such compassion. John really is, in many ways, a spiritual father to the believers who are living there in Ephesus and around that city in Asia Minor. Now, most of us who spend a great deal of time reading the New Testament, uh, we uh, we probably are more influenced by the writings of of, uh, Paul. Um, uh, For example, his letter to the Romans, where uh, Paul's letters are very organized, very tight uh, easy to outline if you sat down and wanted to outline uh, uh, Romans or, or Galatians or Ephesians. It's, it's really easy. Paul's very organized, linear, uh, A, 1, 2, B, 1, 2, right on down the line. Uh, it's not so much with 1 John. Uh, it's pretty easy to pick up the main themes in this letter. Chapter 1 reminds us of the centrality of Jesus, that he has come in the flesh to redeem us. Chapter 2, which I invited you to read during this past week as we prepared for this morning uh, today, going into chapter 3. In chapter 2, John begins talking about the work of Jesus, which we talked about at the uh, the end of last week's message. And then John reminds us of that great theme from the Gospel of John, where Jesus gives us a new commandment, that you should love one another even as I have loved you. That mondate. Uh, which is Latin for New Commandment, which is where we get the term Maundy for Maundy Thursday, which is the the celebration, the observance of Jesus giving to us that New Commandment. Um, John also, in chapter 2, reminds us to avoid living in such a way that garners the approval of the world. He reminds his readers that the world hates us because the world hates Jesus. Um, who He is, who Jesus is. And He warns us of the Antichrists, which is where we really begin to see that word in the New Testament, or those who preach a message that is, quite frankly, opposite to what Jesus preached, uh, who talked about Jesus differently than how Jesus talked about Himself, who deny not only what Jesus taught, but more importantly, they denied who Jesus is. That's the spirit of Antichrist that John's talking about in 1 John chapter 2. But today, as we get into chapter 3, we see, if you've, been reading, if you've read the whole letter and you're trying as best you can to outline a letter which really weaves its topics together, uh, you can see pretty clearly, I think, that 1 John 3 is a pivotal chapter in this letter. It, it sets a contrast uh, between ways to look at the faith, and our place as followers of Jesus Christ, or as adherents to the faith. But before John gets to that, he reminds us of who we are. That we are uh, uh, in a unique relationship with God. And and frankly, brothers and sisters, I think that's a a really significant point uh, as we begin to delve deeper and to what John is trying to teach those who are reading his letter here. So the first point that I want to share with you this morning, it's probably a point that you would say, oh, okay, I get that. But it's a very important point. We are God's children. We are God's children. The point is actually uh, first introduced, in, as I said earlier, in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in me so that when He appears. When He appears. Here John is reminding us of the ultimate hope of every Christian. We have been reminding ourselves of this truth as we gather together at the Lord's table and we we remember at the end of that celebration of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, that great mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. You see, that's the great hope of our faith. It is rooted in Christ's return when He comes to establish His kingdom of perfect peace and perfect justice and ultimately, as the Bible witnesses, makes a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, also written by John, the same uh, beloved disciple who wrote this letter and the Gospel, uh, in, John, in Revelation 21.1, John writes, "...then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." And then in verse 9, "...come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem." coming down from heaven from god and then again in verse 22 and i saw no temple in this city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb and who is this city john answers that in verse 27 of revelation 21 only those who are written in the lamb's book of life that is the hope of every believer's brothers and sisters that you and I are his bride, the wife of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem, the church. Our names written. Can you imagine that? Our names written in the Lamb's book of life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, these are great and august ways John uses to describe who we are that we are this bride, that we are, that we are this new Jerusalem, that, that we are uh, uh, the church. But John also uses this very intimate and personal way of describing who we are. Back again in, John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called, are you ready? Children of God. And so we are. Now, I don't know about you, church, but this fires me up. Now, maybe it's because I still have young children, and when I come home, I love that they come running to greet me. Now, when they get to be teenagers, I, I, I don't know. We all go through the teenage years in our faith, too, don't we? We know that God is uh, uh, the one who calls us into relationship. We know that we're children of God, but... Sometimes we're just not so sure we, we want to be around God as much, just like teenagers might be with, with uh, uh, their, their parents. But I know that my children, who are still uh, 11 and younger, they're excited when I come home. They know that I love them. They know that I would lay my life down for them. How about you? When Christ returns, when He comes back, as John says in Revelation 21 when He returns as we declare each week when we hear that great mystery that Christ will come again, are we excited about that? Will we be the kind of children who run to meet the One who has called us His Son and His daughter? Or will we hide? Will we shake with fear about the judgment that will come? Or like a little child, will we run to Him Those of us who know that this God, whose children that we are, loves us. And are you ready? Lay down His life for us. Now the next two points that I want to share with you today really could be interchangeable. Mainly because that old elder John writes, uh, he does it in such a way, uh, using really a a very Jewish style of, of writing or argumentation. Um, where instead of listing points like we're accustomed to in Western culture, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as Paul might have written, although he too was a Jew, but influenced by a more Western or Greek or Roman understanding of organization, John is really still immersed in that Jewish style of weaving things together. I think both are just as good. They're just different ways of talking about the truth. One way, it's all the truths are segmented and, and sort of build on one another. The other way, the truths are brought together and, 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 and weaved together, I've already said, in such a way like we would weave a, a piece of clothing together as, as fibers and, and fabric become one as they're weaved together. Now, so I'm in a kind of a pickle here because I want to share each of these perspectives with you, but I don't want you to consider that, well, this point is the foundation for the other point, or this point is more important than the other point. Because as John uh, uh, talks about these next two points, he weaves them together. You can't really separate them. They're, They're not one built on top of the other, but they're built together. And so with that awareness of how John presents these next two points in chapter three, I hope it helps us think in such a way that we can understand what John is trying to teach us. But I've got to list them in order, right? Because we're, you know, we, we think and live linearly. So I've got to give one and then I'll give the other. But but remember that. So point two is what we believe influences what we do. What we believe influences what we do. Now, now, we call that orthodoxy or right belief, which is really what the word orthodoxy literally means. Now, you may have heard the term orthodox Christianity, and, um, and, and you have to be mindful of that, that when we, when we hear that term, we can really be referring to two distinct things. One is that branch of Christianity that calls itself Orthodox with a capital O, like the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox Church. But I'm I'm not talking about that segment or that branch of Christianity. I'm talking more about Christians who maintain the Orthodox, this time with a little o, the Orthodox or right teachings about the faith. Things that we might find in some of the oldest statements of the church as to what does the church believe. One of the oldest is, uh, uh, in addition to Scripture, and I'll get to that in a minute, is something like the Apostles' Creed. Uh, one of the oldest creeds. Uh, creed comes from the, the Latin word credo, which simply means, I believe. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, I believe. And God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, or conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, etc. You've probably heard that before. Some of you may even know it by heart as well. Or when we think about Orthodox faith, we think about those things that are clearly taught in Scripture. And in many ways, that's what the Apostles' Creed was intending to to do. Uh, unlike the Nicene Creed, which tries to explain the truths of Scripture, the Apostles Creed simply states the truth of Scripture. And so you can take every statement from the Apostles Creed and find it right in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the, founder of the Christ, one of the founders of the Christian church movement, Alexander Campbell, said that he perfectly agreed with the Apostles Creed but since it was biblical, it was therefore redundant. <laughs> and so, and, and those of us in the Christian church would understand that. And we would look to the clear teachings of Scripture. What are the clear teachings of Scripture? That is orthodoxy. That God is the Creator, that His Son is Jesus Christ, that His Son suffered and died on a cross, was raised again on the third day. Now, here in chapter 3 of 1 John, John lays out some of the orthodox or essential teachings about what the Christian faith is. Like in verse 2, he will appear again. That's clearly his second coming. That is, that's an important part of what John feels should be an essential of the faith. Or in verse 3, those who hope in him will be purified, made like him. And a statement that seems to be pretty important to John because he states it twice. First time in verse 5, you know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. And again in verse 8, the reason the Son of God... And that, that right there is a statement too, isn't it? An identifying statement about who Jesus is, the Son of God. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy... The works of the devil verse 16 by this we know his love that he laid down his life for us referencing his crucifixion verse 23 and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us now in these verses John has laid out the teachings of the church regarding the atonement that is Christ came to take away our sins when he calls Jesus the son of God it's a clear designation of who Christ is a royal term of the first century a a very common phrase that his listeners would have understood the the emperor of Rome used that phrase to to describe himself one who carries the same authority as the king we'll have to do a sermon someday uh soon I hope uh, just on that phrase, Son of God, what it actually means. I think that would be an interesting and illuminating study. To destroy the devil, John says, referencing his resurrection. The devil brings condemnation and death. The way this was destroyed is not that Jesus avoided death. That's not a victory. That's a draw. But that Jesus died. He was buried and on the third day He arose again from the dead, that death could not hold Him. You see, the resurrection is how Jesus destroyed the devil. Because of the resurrection, the devil, the powers of evil, have lost. And this is His commandment, John goes on, that we believe in the name of Jesus. Remember the good confession? A very prevalent phrase in the Christian church movement. That good confession, when Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we use that phrase even today as we invite uh, uh, people into the life and faith, not only of the Christian church, but as they become Christians. We ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? And they respond, yes. And that we love one another. That mondate, that new commandment, that new commandment to love even as we have been loved that we received just uh, in, in celebrating just a few uh, weeks ago uh, during Holy Week prior to Easter. Remember what Jesus said when he answered the lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we call this the great commandment. As the lawyer asked Jesus, What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, what we believe influences what we do. What we believe, our orthodoxy, will influence how we live as believers, John is trying to explain here in this third chapter. But don't forget of point three, that that other point that really isn't higher or lower or different or stacked, but it's weaved together with that Second point, what we believe influences what we do. And point three, what we do influences what we believe. Now, like I said, that the, what we believe influences what we do is an example of orthodoxy or right belief. What we do influences what we believe. Well, we have another big word for that, too, in the church. We call that orthopraxy or right actions, or right conduct, orthopraxy. That is, being a Christian isn't just being concerned about what we believe, but also how we live our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not talking about good works that earn our salvation, as if there was such a thing. But we're talking about the life you and I live as an extension of having been loved by God. Because we're loved by God, we naturally love others. Our good works are an extension of our faith, or as Paul says, the fruit of our faith in Christ. Let's look at John's words again. Look at verse 10. Just like we did, we took a trip through John chapter, 1 John 3, to look at the orthodoxy let us take a trip again through chapter 1 John 3 to look at the orthopraxy verse 10 whoever does not practice righteousness is not of god not is the one who does not love his nor is the one who does not love his brother verse 11 for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another verse 15 everyone who hates his brother is a murderer verse 16 we ought to lay down our life for the brothers and sisters verse 17 if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does love abide in him? how does god's love abide in him verse 18 little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth And then finally, we arrive again in verse 23. The the best verse, I think, that weaves all of this together. We mentioned it at orthodoxy. We mentioned it again now with orthopraxy. We mentioned it with right belief. We mentioned it again with right action. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Verse 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in him. Now there are many in the world, and frankly in the church too, who will elevate one over the other as a clear focus of what we should be teaching. There are Christians who will say, you have to believe the right thing. And then there are Christians who will say, no, 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 you have to do the right thing or for some, salvation, that is justification, is what Christ has done, and we have to believe that, not that we somehow earn our way uh, into the kingdom, uh, but that we are invited into the kingdom because of the merits of Christ. And then there are those who say, no, 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 unless you are doing certain things, salvation will not be yours. And taken separately, both are wrong, I think. At least from what John is trying to explain in 1 John 3. Now, now I might say that as these two are weaved together, we are reminded of a couple of things. First of all, that our justification isn't, is not, because of what we do. As a matter of fact, to to uh, 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 believe that our justification is because of what we do, in many ways is a violation of the first commandment. It's a sin of idolatry. It's us saying uh, that we have another God before our God. That is, as we trust in our own works over the Word and works of God. To trust in ourselves to come into the presence of God is to make an idol of ourselves, of our own work. That God somehow owes us something that, uh, for our feeble and prideful attempt to live a life that compares to that of His Son. And yet at the same time, through the justification of Christ, we begin to bear fruit as a result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That is, if we have come to believe, if we have made Christ Lord of our life, there must be fruit. And that fruit is, from John, in chapter 3 here, that fruit is love. Because God has loved us, we love others. Now, I know that was a lot of heady stuff to think about. But for me, this is a clear and appropriate task for each of us to engage in as we think about our own faith. And it's this. In many ways, it's a challenge that I not only give to myself, but I offer to you as well. Are you ready? If you are finding it hard to love, if you are finding yourself hard-hearted, unable to, to, to have compassion, unable to share your worldly goods, with your brothers and sisters in need? And the question that is in need of answering is this. Are you continuing to reject the love of God? And John, as John says in chapter 3, verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God. And that's exciting. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And then he says, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I know this opens a whole can of worms. In many ways, what John is doing here in chapter 3 is inviting us to take a long, hard look into our hearts. And he's reminding us that our justification is not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. But at the same time, John is also admonishing us that if we have made Christ Lord of our life, then a gentle and compassionate heart is the result. Now, I'm not talking about getting upset on Tuesday or having a, a moment of anger on Thursday. I'm talking about the general trajectory of our lives. And this is a hard world. People throw hate and spew violence and shake fingers at one another and condemn one another. You only need to go to social media or turn on the news or look at what we laugh at in in our entertainment. We are a people that loves to make somebody the identified evildoer. (laughs) And that identification, in some cases, can change week to week. And we can find ourselves drawn into that same uh, approach to life, that same worldview we can cover it up, we can make excuses for ourselves and call it a holy rage. No. No, the followers of Jesus Christ are called to love, and those who are unlovable are the ones that we love all the more. We are people who are called to compassion. And it's not something that we work toward, see? It's, it's, it's not a five-step process Uh, How to be more loving, how to be more compassionate. And I know lots of folks will talk about that. But it's about going back to the beginning. And as easy as it may sound, it's also very, very difficult. What is it that you believe about Jesus Christ? And have you fully surrendered to Him as Lord of your life? In some ways, I feel like I do that every day. And I think that's okay. That, that's not getting saved day after day. That's simply sanctification. But it's a willingness not to reject God. To wake up every morning and choose to not reject Christ's lordship in your life. And as difficult and as painful as it may be, the decision of surrendering and sacrificing yourself so that the world can see Christ in you And remember that the world has hated Christ. And so the the more the world sees Christ in you, the more the world will hate you. But you can do nothing else. Why? Because the seed of God is in you and you can do nothing else but love and sacrifice for the hope of eternal life for all who would believe. Have you made that good confession? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and have you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior? Nothing more, nothing less. If you've done that today, would you click on that button if you're on our online.church platform? Or if you're watching or listening on any of our other platforms, we'd like to encourage you to send us an email at office at southsuburban.com or you can go to our website at southsuburban.com. Down near the bottom at the page is a little... Uh, 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 hyperlink for next steps and there we have some videos that you can watch about the next steps of what it means to make christ lord of your life i pray that this is the day that the seed of god is planted in your heart and begins to bear the fruit of love for his glory amen